Hello and welcome to the Glow Journal podcast, a conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this episode, I'm joined by the founder of Holy Frog, Emily Parr. Emily Parr's career in beauty began when her career in the wellness space saw her headhunted by Selma Hayek. Having worked in fashion and health PR respectively, Selma Hayek's brand was Emily's first beauty client. This led Emily to found Poke PR in late 2012, an agency that would go on to both represent and grow the likes of Drunk Elephant and Glow Journal's friends The Beauty Chef, Summer Fridays and Briogeo, all of which were brands that Emily cold emailed and pitched to herself. Emily garnered a reputation for being the industry's champion of female-founded, founder-led, clean beauty brands, and she's largely responsible for the narrative shift beauty media made away from the term natural and towards the term clean. It was in 2018 that a chance encounter at an industry function saw Emily meet the man who would later become her Holy Frog co-founder with Holy Frog soon becoming the go-to brand for a product many cosmetic formulators had dubbed the beauty industry's afterthought, cleanser. What did begin as a line of facial cleansers has since expanded to serums and a moisturiser, with four new launches hitting shelves in the next 12 months. In this conversation, Emily shares the art of the cold email, some truly interesting points on media's shift to digital and what that means for the beauty industry, and the importance of knowing the difference between telling a brand's story versus sharing a selling point. Now, your career began in fashion at Vera Wang specifically, but I would love to start by rewinding even further what is your very earliest memory of beauty? My earliest memory of beauty, and this is a funny one. So most young girls, they play around in their mom's bathroom, right? They play around Mm -hmm. with their mom's skincare and in their makeup bag. And I didn't do that because my mom has always had really severe eczema. So my mom has been on prescriptions for ever since I was a little girl and started dabbling with you know beauty products so for me my earliest memory in which i would count it as a positive one in terms of using someone else's beauty products was babysitting i was yeah i was a babysitter we lived in this um in a new development neighborhood where i was in i was in middle school so and there were all these little kids so i was like the leader of the babysitters club and every time those kids went down for a nap or they went to bed at night, I was in the ma- in the bathroom, seeing, playing around with their lawn comb and their Clinique and all of their like department store makeup products. I'm so jealous that you got to babysit. I read all the Babysitter's Club's books growing up. There was oh, no yeah. one in my street for me to babysit. I was like, that was me. I had signs in the neighborhood and I was the go-to mother's helper or babysitter in this huge new development. Yeah. I so, love it. I did it just to, uh, part of me did it just so I could like, you know, experiment with those ladies' beauty products. 
<laughs> That's a good enough reason. So, I mean, technically speaking, that was your first job, but what did you think that you might be when you grew up? I would say, I don't know that, I don't remember what I thought I wanted to be at that age. I will tell you when I was in college, all I wanted to be when I grew up was Kelly Ripa. I wanted to be the host of a talk show. And her sure. specifically. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and then of course I met her a few years later and that was, it was like, every, my whole life had come full circle. Here I am working out at the same fitness studio as the woman whose job I wanted to take. <laughs> well, you've given me a nice segue there, speaking of fitness studios. So as I've mentioned, your career did begin in fashion, PR at Vera Wang, but after a couple of years, you moved into the wellness space. What drew you to that industry? So for me, it's, you know, I always say I only ever been good at my jobs based on the passion I felt for them. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think that early on in my career, I was given my first shot um, in the fashion industry. And that allowed me to figure out, um, you know, if PR was the right career path for me. And then from there, it's always about kind of peeling the layers back and sort of, um, I would say, um, specializing even further from there. And while I was at Vera Wang, I very much realized, now Vera Wang, is a very large fashion house. And there's bridal, there's ready to wear, there's licensing. At the time there was a, there was a I don't know if it still exists, but there was a department store um, collection. There was a, you know, there, there were just so many aspects to, to, to the business. And every month felt like fashion month, every month. And I'm a lifestyle girl. I love healthy living. And if you feel like your life is being rattled every month because it feels like fashion month every 30 days, that wasn't going to work for me. I was someone who was very in tune to holistic living, you know, my fitness regimen, my beauty regimen, my, you know, anything I could do to sort of lower, um, you know, my stress levels. And I realized at that time that I was a, I was a wellness worshiper. <laughs> And I started sending out just blanketed emails to, at that time, it was 2011-ish that I was starting to realize this. Ultimately, I left Vera Wang in to, no, that was regardless. I think I started at Equinox in 2010. But either way, this is right when the wellness industry was it really starting to peak in, in the US, um, or really just starting to, it's up, uphill climb, you know? And I knew that there would be opportunity for me in that industry. And I just started sending blind emails out to CEOs at wellness companies. And ultimately, you know, I emailed the CEO of Equinox and he must have forwarded my email immediately to someone because I, within a matter of a couple hours, got an email wow. from Equinox. Yeah. Asking the head of PR invited me in for a meet and greet and she said to me, she said, you know, I, um, you're great. And I could totally see you working here, but we don't have a position available right now. And I was like, oh shoot. But long story short within, I would say within three months, she called me back and said, Hey, we're creating a position in the department for you. Can you come back in and meet so-and-so? And, you know, I was, that's, that's really how I got into, into the fitness space. And 
I loved it. I loved, loved, loved my job there. It was truly a perfect fit. Um, yeah. So that was how that happened. Very, you know, just, just shoot your best shot. <laughs> yeah. The power of the cold email, which I think is a, um, a theme throughout <laughs> the, uh, the line of questioning I've got for you. I, I'm very good at pitching myself. Mm-hmm. You would, I mean, you'd want to be working in PR. Yeah, I just pitched myself. That's what I did. And that's what I've always done. That's how I've flown, grown my client base in a PR with my PR business. I love it. So you were at Equinox doing their PR. When did Juice Generation enter the picture? He entered the picture, let's see, sometime in 2011. Mm-hmm. Uh, I left Equinox to start Poke PR in September 2012. So we had probably become, and again, like it was just a work relationship. Equinox was opening, um, you know, real estate. They were opening locations inside of a few of the prime real estate Equinox locations. And I was, we became friendly that way. Um, You know, we had kind of hosted a press event so that the editors knew that Juice Generation was kind of a part of the Equinox family now. And, you know, I just took a liking, the founder and I, we just really jived from from the get-go. And I think he really liked, um, you know, the way I, you know, was friends with the editors and just sort of the rapport I had with the editors. And, um, you know, we became very, very friendly. And really, I started as I was in conversation with editors pitching the latest fitness classes, I started pitching the latest juices and smoothies because they weren't competitive, you know, the two brands in any way. I wasn't bumping a fitness class out of a story. You know, they were either going to feature it on a separate page or within a trendy trend or wellness roundup. And I started kind of just getting him press for free. You know, I wasn't getting paid. And No, I wasn't getting paid at that time. I was just doing it because I was passionate about his products. And then as as thank you gifts, he started sending me, you know, cleanses and, um, and he had these raw, this raw food plan. And I swear every month I was getting a five day supply of juice generation, raw, raw, cool, raw food and cold pressed juices. And I was like, this is great. What a nice trade-off. Yeah, I'm like, this guy is like feeding me. And um, that's really, that was driving me at the time. I'm like, I loved his product so much that I was happy to keep pitching his brand in exchange for, you know, the cauliflower salad and the Supa Dupa greens. And that's how that started. And one thing led to another and you know all of a sudden i'm taking the guy on desk sides and he finally said to me he was like you know i i i am so appreciative of everything you're doing for me but you know will you help me find a publicist so of my own <laughs> and i introduced him to a couple of girls that i thought could be a good fit and you know after he had had his meetings and interviews with them he sat me down one day we went to lunch and he said, you know, I really appreciate all of these introductions, but I want you, I want you to do my PR. And I was, I just looked at him and I said, I'm so flattered, but I have a job. I, and, and I like it. And I, and he said, no, 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 no. You know, cause the reality of it is, is 
I loved his brand, but it wasn't enough in terms of the subject matter and the content mm. that I knew I could pitch yeah. um, be my sole position. I really liked having fitness and juice. I liked having the two of them. And he was like, no, 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 you, you, don't, you don't understand. I want to pay you a PR retainer to do my PR as a consultant. And I was like, oh, I mean, okay. In my mind, in exchange, rather than, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. And instead of getting juice cleanses, he's going to send me a check. This yeah. worked. So that's how that happened. And he is still one of my dearest, best friends, big brother, guardian angels. Like he is one of the most important people in my life <laughs> to this day. I love that. Yeah. And that's he, I would say for the first six months, I was doing both of them. And I never hid this from Equinox. This wasn't a secret in much the same way that we'll get to later. I never hid the fact that I was launching Holy Frog while I had a PR agency. I never hid that. They were Equinox. I don't know if they turned a blind eye, whether they thought to themselves, well, she's not going to ask for a raise when we're letting her consult on the side. That could have been a driving motivation. I'll never know. Um, but it worked for both parties. And then um, one day, Eric, the, the my friend from Juice Generation, he called me and he said, uh, Emily, I think you're going to get a call or an email from, from Salma, Salma Hayek. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? And he said, well, she sees her name in the press all the time because she was is connected to the Juice Generation brand. She sees her name all the time connected to the brand and you haven't needed to involve her in anything and she's getting press without being involved and she, she wants you to do her PR. And I was like, uh, and he goes, no, 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 don't worry. I already told her, I said, baby, baby, she, she doesn't do entertainment PR. She's not gonna do your, your movie junkets and your entertainment stuff. She's not gonna do that. And I'm like, no, I'm certainly not going to do that. Like, I am all for learning new industries, but I am not going to go on, like, worldwide press junkets with the celebrity. I don't like to travel. <laughs> so I, um, you know, he said, no, so she wants you to do the PR for her beauty brand, which a year prior had launched at CVS Pharmacy, which mm -hmm. in the U.S. is a big drugstore chain. And I thought to myself, okay, that could be really interesting. So rather than getting a call or an email from Sama Hayek, I get an email from the head of PR at CBS. And it was very much, we're told we're going, we need to hire you. We will be in New York to meet you. It was very much, you essentially have the job because Sama told us we have to hire you. We're coming in to meet you. Wow. Yeah. And I was, mind you, I'm emailing them from my Gmail address, emilyparr at gmail.com if you ever need to reach me personally. <laughs> and I am, need to take a meeting with the head of PR uh, at CBS Pharmacy, which is a very big corporation. Yeah. So I um, took the meeting and of course it was very much, they wanted me to start in like two weeks. I'm still a full-time employee at Equinox. So I went in to my boss at the time and I sat down and I was like, I said to her, um, Judy, I think I need to leave. 
And she was like, what? And I told her what, ha what had transpired with Eric and Salma and CBS. And, she, and I told her how much money they were going to be paying me. She had a jaw drop. There was nothing you could say. You couldn't counter that. You couldn't meet me halfway. Like, you could not pay me what they were going to pay me. Like, in the matter of an email, I was making, I don't know, five or six times what I was making as a full-time employee for Equinox. There, there, yeah, there was no question. There was no, let me go home and draw two columns of pros and cons here. That wasn't gonna happen. This was a clear cut answer. And when you're in your 20s and you're being offered that kind of money, you take it and run and give your two weeks notice. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. And I mean, free juices are great, but like you yeah. can't pay off a mortgage with a five-day juice cleanse. No, I was not going to, you know, upgrade my, my apartment lease with a juice no. cleanse. No, not quite. So that's September 2012. That's I mean, September 2012. And I obviously I didn't have an office and – all of a sudden I'm getting an email from CVS saying, um, we've got all the samples that we need to send over. Where should we send them? Okay, mm -hmm. I'm not a fitness publicist. I'm not a beauty publicist yet. I don't did not have any vague idea as to how many beauty samples PR agencies house. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking, oh, it's gonna be a little box of product. I give them my office address, the Equinox office. Mm -hmm. Thinking I'm just going to carry it home after work one day. Okay. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. So I'm in a meeting and the receptionist comes over, pulls me out and says, uh, Emily, there's a moving truck downstairs for you. Oh, no, 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 <laughs> I didn't believe it. I was like, this isn't, this isn't, what is she talking about? This can't be for me. I go downstairs and there is a truck outside. And I look at the man and I said, 60 West 10th Street, please. Yeah. My apartment address at the time. And um, I ran upstairs and I said to my boss, I have to go home. Because in my mind, I'm like, listen, she's not, you know, I'm honoring the time that I gave them, but I, this is now my future. Mm. So I ran home and they were just, I had to meet, get there before they got there. And they were just piling. I laid down a sheet on the floor in my living room because I didn't want these who knows, dirty boxes all over my floor. Mm -hmm. And they're just being stacked up to the ceiling. And they left and I literally just stood there. You know, when you just stand there and you're like, huh. Yep. What are we gonna do next here? And I took a picture of it and I sent it to Eric from Juice Generation. And he calls me, what is that? And I said, that's all the nuanced Salma Hyatt products. And he goes, where are you? And I said, my apartment. And he said, send me your address. Within an hour, I had Juice Generation vans coming to my apartment, picking up all the product. And Eric built shelves for all of my beauty products, my beauty samples out at his office in Long Island City. He had a huge commissary, right? Because you have to when you're, mm. you this, you own your own production facility. He built shelving for my beauty products. I think those, I, those shelves stayed there. I kept my product there for at least two years. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Eric. Again, oh. 
big brother, guardian angel, hero of my life. Thank you, Eric. So that's, I mean, your first beauty client is Selma Hayek's beauty brand. How long did it take to take one client, get a bit of momentum and turn this into a fully fledged agency? I waited a year. So I really felt, you know, I was, it wasn't a money thing. I was making enough money between plenty of money between Salma Hayek's brand and Juice Generation, who was obviously paying me at the time. And I, the first thing I did was I hired my sister who had just graduated from college. And, um, you know, I figured, you know what, come to New York, live with me. At the time I was living with my older sister who was spending all of her time at her boyfriend's. So I just said, stay in Sarah's room. She lived in Sarah's room. We worked out of that apartment. And for the first year, it was just, let's figure out how to operate as a PR agency with a very corporate client and a celebrity. So when you've got a client like that, you're managing all the red tape of a corporation, which is, you know, a lot of decks and spreadsheets and just a lot of paperwork um, and presentations and managing a very high profile celebrity who has a manager, an agent, her own personal publicist. So you're managing all of it was that alone was more than a full-time job. Truly. I would be calling Eric sometimes at 1145 at night, like wanting to pull my hair out, still working at 1145 at night. And, you know, we'd go to bed with my eyes like red and burning from just staring at the computer screen all day long. So it really took me a full year to feel comfortable in my own skin as the owner of a PR agency. And it wasn't until a year later that I was like, okay, I'm in a rhythm and I'm not someone who's comfortable being in a rhythm. Once I'm in a rhythm, I want more. That's Mm -hmm. just how I am. And that's always when I knew that it was time to grow. And that's, I started growing from there. So I started slowly. I never took on more than I could chew. Maybe I did sometimes, but you know, um, I never, you know, I was very careful with how I grew and I just slowly started adding clients to my, um, you know, my, my portfolio that seemed, you know, that I knew I could be passionate about. And the first client I added was Kelly Ripa's personal trainer. Mm-hmm. Um, who was opening a fitness studio and then Drunk Elephant shortly thereafter. Yeah. I'm so glad you touched on the fact that it wasn't the money that was holding you back from kind of expanding and bringing more staff in because I think that's a, a huge mistake some people make. They think, okay, financially I can do this, this and this now and that's what I should be doing. But there's a huge mental component that comes with it too and if you if you grow and you hire too soon and you're not prepared, yeah. that, I mean, and it can be one of the worst things you can do. Hiring is so hard as hmm. it is. Hiring is extremely hard. I mean, I didn't – I was – it was really Lainey and I, Lainey's my sister, for the first, oh gosh, three, four years. It was just the two of us. We had we worked so, still work so well together and complement each other's styles and you know expertises so well that it was just, and it was so hard to think about bringing in another person 
think about if you are working with two sisters. That's hard for anyone. Like we knew that. I mean, I'm an only child, but I can imagine that it's yeah. <laughs> it's tricky. And yeah, I we and we we just figured, you know what? Let's just keep grinding this out together. So truly, was never about the money. It was really about an itch. When I felt I had an itch to grow and a brand like piqued my interest, I at that time was going after my own brands. I went mm. after Drunk Elephant. Yeah. You know, like I went after I went after my own brands. Like I would see a brand that appealed to me. And I would pitch myself, and that's how it worked. Um, I, I always joke that you know, and that's how I grew until I became sort of you know a name in the beauty industry and had the ability to yay or nay when brands came to me, whether I was interested in them or not. Um, I was, I would say, for most of I, I, probably seventy percent of the clients I ever represented in my career, I went after. You've mentioned Drunk Elephant. I wanted to ask you about this time. Naturally, I have a few questions. You looked after Drunk Elephant, also some friends of the show, The Beauty Chef, Briogeo, Summer Fridays, pretty incredible brands. Did you did you just do the cold email thing with all of them? Is that how you were going about acquiring these clients? Briogeo, it's funny. So Drunk Elephant, cold email. Mm-hmm. Um, they had started following me, the brand, Drunk Elephant had started following me on Twitter. This was oh. before we all had converted over to Instagram. Mm-hmm. And I get this alert one day, you know, my Drunk Elephant skincare has started following you. And it was August 2013. So exact, almost exact, you know, 11 months yeah. after I launched Coke PR. And I, um, I looked into what that was. And it was just a landing page. The brand had not launched yet. And I, the landing page was so good looking and the motif and it just felt like this is going to be something that's well thought out and i emailed the gene- the general you know inquiries email address that they had on the on the landing page and i pitched myself and actually tiffany responded right back and said you sound right up my alley and at, at that stage when you're so like founders respond receive every one of those emails and they look after every one of those emails as if it's a life or death situation mm. like that's truly how it is when you're when you're that young of a brand and i do the same thing i mean i i look at every single thing that comes through ribbit at holyfog.com so um so it, it wasn't i now know that that was not unusual um, and she, I pitched myself and she said, responded right back and said, you sound right up my alley, but we've just hired a PR agency to start with our social media. And I thought that was so strange. At why the time, you, sure. At the time, why would you hire a PR agency to not do PR, but to, to, to not launch with PR and to launch with only social media? And so I said, I pushed her on it. And I said, if you don't mind me asking, who did you hire? Because I knew that if she was going with a large PR agency, this was not going to go the right direction. Because at that time, large agencies weren't looking at um, indie brands as opportunities. They were looking at it as, you're paying a small retainer, I'm going to give you a small amount of my time. Yeah. And that's, you know, she had hired a very, very, very large um, antiquated (laughs) PR agency. And I'm like, this is so bizarre. So I just, you know, I stayed in touch with her and, you know, I obviously didn't get the brand right away. It was probably a year. And I stayed in touch with her during that time because I wasn't seeing the brand anywhere, anywhere. 
And I, and I knew it. And ultimately we had, um, ends up, I had dinner with her two times within, you know, a short period of time to the, you know, two times that she had come to New York and we hit it off and I, you know, ended up representing the brand and ultimately hiring, finding her social media person for her who ended up doing this social media for the brand up until the brand sold to Shiseido. So, cause she had said, will you do my social media as well? They're doing my social. And I said, well, that's why it's so bad. The social's so bad. They had less than 1,500 followers a year into the brand's launch. And I was like, we're not going to go down that road again. I'm a publicist, not a social media person. I will find you someone. And I found the consultant who ended up doing it that the the entire remainder of those years. I love that. They are different skill sets and people forget that. Yeah. I mean, they're so different that... You can't even just hire it. An editor would almost be a more natural fit mm. to going in and being your social media person than a publicist. And there are so many editors who at the time I had emailed for her. I was trying everyone, right? Everyone, anyone I could think of whose skill set might translate into this type of a role. And a bunch of the editors were like, I'm, I'm really not good. You know, I'm long form, you know, I really don't think I'm the type of writer who can say what needs to be said and fewer amount of characters. And it is, it's a very different skill set. Big time. Yeah. Can you recall any specific, say milestones or highlights from your time working across those brands? I, let's see, I think, um, Summer Fridays was a huge milestone for us because, you know, with a lot of the brands that we launched prior to that, they weren't new brands. And it was almost like Hope PR always had to kind of come in. And we, I always used to say to Lainey, I always used to be like, we're like the cleanup crew. When are we going to be able to just come in and launch a brand and do it right from the start? I'm so tired of being the cleanup crew. I have to come in after other PR agencies have created this mess and I have to unravel the mess first and then start from my fresh slate. Mm -hmm. And you know, that was, it gets old after a while, after you're doing that for brand after brand after brand after brand after brand, because it takes time to then get the editors to start thinking about the brand in a different way, your way, the way that you feel is most representative of the brand for the outside world to see and hear and listen to and know about the brand. And Summer Fridays was the first brand that we got to launch. So that was, you know, and it was a big launch because we did a bi-coastal, it was bi-coastal launch for us. So we did a New York event on a Tuesday night, then Wednesday morning got on a flight and Thursday had the press event in LA. So it was a whirlwind, but it was so much fun because Marion and Lauren are lovely, lovely humans. They just are. They're the nicest girls. And the gratitude they always expressed for the time and the care and the work you put into their brand was um, refreshing. And it was just, um, that sweetened the deal. Do you know what I mean? It was already a great brand and the, you know, the, the, um, the story behind it was, I mean, they were, of course they're influencers, but they were really on the early, early side of that. 
um, especially for skincare. I mean, at the time you had Jen Atkin doing Way, um, but Marianne and Lauren were with Summer Fridays. It was it was very early on in the whole obviously trajectory that influencer brands has taken, and they just having a client who lets you do it a certain way, your way, and trusts you, and then thanks you, it's not normal. <laughs> yeah, we had them on the show pre-pandemic. They came out to Australia, and the whole time I was talking to them, they were like, we're sorry, we can't believe we're in Australia and there are people on the other side of the world using these products. And we're like, of course, they're wonderful products, but they just they could not believe it. Yeah, they're really that, like, they're really that nice. Mm. So I would say that was a huge highlight in my career. Um, you know, another highlight I would say is, you know, Drunk Elephant was a highlight for sure. I mean, we took a brand, um, you know, that had existed for uh, 15 months by the time we took on the brand. And there was, Baby facial, I would say, you know, that was the first really big, big launch for us having the brand. And it was, it kind of took on a life of its own. And I would say that was one of those products because it was so powerful that, you know, in terms of the ingredient profile um, and the acid content, which I don't, you guys don't have that product in Australia, do you? I think we do. I mean, I definitely have it, but I'm a spoiled brat, so I'm not sure if I got it in store or if it just landed here. Yeah, I don't know if that's sellable in the Australian market. May not be. Yeah, but in the US, it was it was huge, and it there was a ripple effect globally. I mean, I knew people wanted it globally, and it was an interesting time because the word clean skincare was not yet being used. It was mm. the editors and the journalists here were all using the term natural and all natural. And that simply did not apply to a product like this. So I kept having to say to editors, no, you cannot you include this product in a story about you know the best all natural beauty products of whatever year we were in. And I said, if, and, and they were like, but we really want to include it. And I go, okay, then you have to change the headline. The headline needs to be broader because this is not an all natural product. I said, you can use the word non-toxic or clean. And that truly, I honestly believe, like, I swear I'm not being an egomaniac about this. I swear the amount of times I had to plant that word, retailers weren't using it yet. The editors all started using that word because they wanted to include this product in these stories, but I wouldn't let them because it, it, it didn't fit. So they all started slowly turning over the narrative to using clean and non-toxic. And obviously like at the time the internet was, you know, king, right? Mm. It was like the internet was just coming of age in 2015, 2016, and all eyes are on the World Wide Web. And when you see this word clean and non-toxic everywhere on the internet, then retailers start noticing. So it was that, you know, that was even, of course, working on that brand was, was a career and a landmark moment, but even more so, thinking of even more top line, being a part of the clean beauty movement, the female founder movement, because 
we were representing pretty much all founder-led brands and being a part of the digital movement. I mean, this was a time where, you know, we were no longer focused on just printing, worried, worried about print publications. And to be honest, because we were the cleanup crew and we were representing brands that had, had already existed and long lead magazines at the time, the print magazines were only focused on what was new, 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 or else they didn't care about you. And so I said, when we took on Drunk Elephant, I said, you know what? Let's just not even concern ourselves with long lead right now because they don't care. They don't care about what's great. They only cared about what was new. So we solely focused on digital with that brand. And we saw the power that that took because at the time, digital didn't have the behind the scenes politics that print had. So digital wasn't, they didn't have these huge ad spends and brands weren't spending millions of dollars in, in their ad revenue on the digital side. They were still doing it with print. So the digital editors got to run wild with whatever content they wanted to. So that was a time where we literally just got to pitch the biggest and the best profiles and love story type content to the, to the digital editors without anyone saying no. They literally looked at your pitch and said, this is a great story, rather than looking at your pitch and being like, oh, but they're not an advertiser. You know, they're gonna have to pay for something like that. Mm-hmm. that. That was, I mean, right there, I would say that was probably that time period of clean, digital and founder led was everything to me. <laughs> I imagine there'll be a little bit of overlap here. This is either a very broad question or a very specific one. I can't quite decide. But when you were looking for or discovering these niche brands when they were still really in their infancies, what was it that you were looking for before you took them on? Was there a magic ingredient of sorts that made you say, this is a brand that I want to work with and that I can confidently help scale? Yeah, so... It's funny that you said, is there a magical ingredient? I was specifically looking for brands that did not have a magical ingredient. So uh-huh. I was specifically looking when anytime a brand came to me and said, you know, this is our point of differentiation. We use this proprietary complex and every single one of, I was not interested in brands like that. I thought to myself, how boring, because I can only tell that story for at most six months and then everyone's covered it and you're irrelevant because that story can only be done by each outlet one time. So that was totally not of interest or importance for me. I was very much looking for stories that were aha moments, founder stories that were different from one another to fit into my portfolio, but didn't compete with, they didn't conflict with one another. So in the case of the clean beauty movement, um, you know, at the time it was very much all about Tata Harper. I mean, she was just queen at that time and she used essential oils. So a lot of them still does. Um, And so when Tiffany came along and her philosophy was very much against essential oils, I, that was interesting to me. I got to go out to the beauty industry and basically debunk this the queen at the time and that was you know a quite a task 
Um, you know, but it was, that was, that was a driving factor for me in taking on this brand. I liked the fact that she was a stay at home mom and was self taught. Um, but really I was interested in the essential oil thing because it was, it was literally everywhere you turned, it was all about Tata. And I was very much interested in telling a story that flipped all of those previous stories on their head. That's what was interesting to me. Um, you know, and so I was really, I, at the time I really was looking for female founders. Um, they resonated with me. Um, they resonated with the consumer. And I obviously noticed that, you know, the, um, because the audience is at that time was mostly female readers, um, you know, it was going to be much more difficult for male profiles and placement on, you know, on, on, on male with male led brands. And, you know, I, I, that was just an observation that I had made and I was kind of, you know, I, I, I that stuck with me. So I very much was looking for women. Um, when someone like Nancy Twine came along, I was very, her background was, was very enticing to me. You have this extremely smart, um, young, very young. I mean, she's, I think, 36 now. So, and I've been representing her for, I think, five years. So, um, you know, and you've got this very young woman who was in finance, you know, a, a vice president at Goldman Sachs, which in the U.S., when you think of Wall Street, you think of Goldman Sachs. Mm-hmm. And she was fascinating to me. And also, no one was approaching hair care at that time um, in a way and it, through a lens the way, the way skincare founders were. So that was interesting to me. So, you know, I always did my research on all of these brands that I wanted to work with as I was doing proposals for them. So as part of the, you know, PR hiring process, you, 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 cre- you put together proposals. And that proposal for me, it was almost more for me than it was for the recipient. That was me doing my research and brain dumping to the person I was sending it to, which at the time was always the founder. So I put in, I always did them on weekends. I dedicated my entire weekend to researching this brand, everything that was out there and putting my own spin on it. This is who I think you are. This is who I think the audience sees you as right now. This is where I think we could improve on that. It was like every proposal to me was like a dissertation. I swear, I spent the entire weekend working on these. So when I walked into day one with a client, I was already felt like I was an expert on that brand. So I was very, I knew going into, at the end of every proposal where I get to the end, I knew that I was going to either, I don't think there was ever a time. And by the way, there wasn't ever a time because if, as I was doing my deep dive research, I probably would have put the pen down, mic drop and not submitted the proposal. I would have emailed the founder and said, you know, I don't think this is a good fit. And I wouldn't have done the proposal because I'm not gonna spend any more time on it if it's something I don't wanna represent. Mm. So any proposal that was sent in, it was always a brand that I was gung-ho about because I had spent my entire weekend, you know, really, it, it, was, it was an immersion. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like it. Yeah. 
Yeah. On aha moments and female founders, the year is 2018 and the concept for Holy Frog hits you. I understand that running and SPF played a role here. Can you talk me through it? Yeah. So, you know, I, my business partner, his name is Majid, and we became um, very good industry friends through a client that we both shared. And the client is, um, was at the time allies of skin. Um, and I was doing the PR and Majid was doing the retail, you, you know, the brand management. So his mm-hmm. role was really to get the brand into retailers globally. And we met at an allies of skin press event. And we just hit it off right away. I mean, my job as a publicist is, you know, to be chatting with the editors the whole time. And I literally was in a corner chatting with Majid, the entire press event, because we just hit it off. And, you know, I literally secretly, you know, I love this. I love the beauty industry. Everything about it is fascinating. It's, I love the, you know, analyzing the industry. I love everything about it. And I looked at Majid as someone that I could call at night and on weekends when no one else wanted to talk to me about work. Majid was going to be that phone call. I was going to bother Majid all weekend long and all night long about the beauty industry, the brands we both represented, the industry at large. I just wanted to talk about it 24-7. And listen, Lainey, my sister who still works for me, she is only going to listen to it so many hours in the day. (laughs) <laughs> so Majid was going to be that next call. And, you know, so we, he said to me, you know, and this was in 2000, earlier in 2018, he had said, you know, we should launch a brand together. And I was like, I would totally launch a brand with you. And he specifically said, we should launch a brand together. We would be like the wonder twins. He said, with everything you know about your side of the industry and everything I know about mine, he said, we would really rock it. And I just said, you know what? I would 100% start a brand with you, but what would we launch? Because at that time, Clean Up Sephora had just launched in the US mm. and all those brands, they were bringing in every clean brand under the sun in every part of the world, from every part of the world. And they were all calling me because I was like the go-to for clean founder-led beauty brands. Mm. And I wasn't really interested in any of those brands. And that's why when Majid approached me and asked me to take on, to, to launch a brand with him, I thought to myself, well, I'm not even interested in any of the brands that are pitching themselves to me, never mind launching my own brand. I mean, the market is obviously saturated. And so I kind of walked, we both walked away from it. A couple months later, she came back, came over to my office. And he said, well, what if we launch, what if we became the go-to brand for cleansers? And I said, you know, again, this was 2018. It was February, March, and Summer Fridays was about to launch. And I was like, my head was going to explode. It was crazy. I mean, it was such a huge launch. And I literally just shot him right down. And I said, well, that doesn't sound very interesting. And (laughs) walked away from it yet again. And then it was Memorial Day weekend, which in the U.S. is the end of May. And some Memorial Day weekends are very rainy and cold. This particular Memorial Day weekend was like 90 degrees and blazingly sunny. 
And I was going on these long runs. I was at my um, husband's parents' house in, at the, on the Jersey Shore. And I was going on these 10 mile runs and I have my hot yoga studio there. So I was working out two times a day, sweating profusely. And I was washing my face five times a day. And my skin was struggle city, I'm telling you. And I thought to myself, what is going on here? Because I know ingredients. I know what works for me. I know what doesn't work for me. I'm not using anything that is nothing in these products, you know, is one of those isolated ingredients that I can't use. So what's happening? And it boiled down to the fact that the cleansers I was using, I was washing my face too many times a day with cleansers that were too high in their surfactant percentages. So the surfactants are the cleansing agents. So think of it as the detergent in your cleanser. Mm-hmm. And the percentages were far too high, especially for someone who's only wash- who's washing their face four or five times a day. And so I called Majid after that weekend and I said, Let- let's do it. I'm, it's my cleanser that's causing the issue. I need a wardrobe of cleansers. I'm telling you, I want a suite of cleansers. I want a different cleanser for every one of those cleansing moments I had found myself in. When I first wake up, after my first workout, after my second workout, after the beach, when I need to you know, do a you know, more thorough wash, before bed. Like I wanted a whole lineup of different cleansers of, you know, with, with very different ingredient properties, with different, um, you know, textures, because cleansers are the one category where it's not just light and heavy. You've got mm-hmm. a powder cleanser, you've got a physical scrub, you've got a chemical scrub, a chemical exfoliator, you've got, you know, a milk cleanser, a gel cleanser, a balm or an oil. You have so many different cleansers you can play with. So I was like, Let, let's do it. And we immediately started contacting labs. And I'll tell you, we spoke to every lab, every lab you could possibly imagine. And all the chemists had said to us unanimously, you guys are really onto something because cleansers are really the afterthought in the beauty industry. Mm, Big time. Mm -hmm. And they said to us, brands come to us and they either run out of money and they need to cut a product out of their lineup at launch. And they always choose the cleanser to cut out or they don't even plan to launch with a cleanser, or they just don't put any money into the R&D and into the ingredients. It's like soap and water, and they just throw that in to have, but it's never meant to be you know, any form of hero in, in line. And they were all, every chemist truly, like large and small lab, they all wanted to work with us because it was different. It was so different from what they were, you know, the, the projects that they were essentially being assigned by brands. And that we really just, from that point on, we just ran. <laughs> the brands that you were representing at Poke were all within that clean beauty space, as you've mentioned. So I imagine Holly Frog being a clean brand as well was always going to be a non-negotiable for you. Did that, that you know, having clean as a non-negotiable, did that present many challenges throughout the product development process? So we actually only worked with, so here, I'll tell you how we found our, ultimately found our, our, the two labs that we work with. Yeah. Um, We ended up contacting a ingredient supplier, the owner of a raw material supplier. And she was known her, all of her raw materials were natural and organic. And we said to her, 
her name was Gay Timmons. And we said, Gay, you work with all the labs around the world. If you, you supply them your raw materials. If you were to develop your own skincare line, who would you work with? And she gave us our two labs. And as a result, we worked with labs where they are known, like they pretty much only work within the clean spectrum. Right. So had we gone with a lab that, you know, was much larger and they're still, you know, they still operate in a bit more of an old school mindset when it came to ingredients, I think we wouldn't have been able to launch as quickly as we launched because it would have taken so many revisions to get to a place where we were happy. But because we were working with labs where this is what they do, this is what they know, they don't even think of putting a silicone here or there. And not that silicones are dirty, but like, not that they're not clean, because that's not what I'm saying, but they're, these were extremely forward thinking labs in terms of the ingredients that they were using. So I think that, you know, we came to the table with, I mean, I'm telling you to this day, our chemists do not stray from my brand, my product briefs. They do not stray. And they, you know, I'm very opinionated about how exactly what I want in there and at what percentages I want them in there. And that also made for, you know, a much easier working relationship. I wasn't one of those founders who was like, um, I want a hydrating cleanser. And then there, you that founder barely knows what they want, never mind giving very little direction to the chemists. Like it was very much like, this is, you know, this is, they knew exactly how to start. There's nothing worse than giving a creative person a project with no direction. Mm. And we were the opposite of that. It was very specific. So take that coupled with chemists who were known for solely creating clean beauty products it was, you know, we were, we're, we're still to this day very quick when it comes to signing off our formulas. This makes a lot of sense because I've spoken to a number of founders of clean brands who have gone to, you know, the big lab and they've talked to me through how much they had to push back when the lab was saying, no, this is impossible. We can't do it. So the fact that you've started in the correct place, significantly yeah. less pushback. Yeah, I, I honestly wouldn't have the patience for that. <laughs> I really, I would not, I mean, honestly, that phone call to Gay Timmons was a life changer because we could have very easily ended up at one of those larger labs. Um, and the fact that, you know, both of our, at the time, our, our first lab, which was based in Colorado, they were very small, um, not too small. I mean, they were still working with brands in Sephora, for example, um, but they were privately owned and, um, you know, they were just a nice size. You were working with the VP of product development, not just a young little chemist, which you might get in a large lab, you know, and um, our other lab, which is in, in Minneapolis, again, like I'm working with the head of R&D. Like when I want to talk him through, you know, I submit my product brief and then we get on the phone and we talk about everything. I'm not just working with a little junior chemist. I'm working with the, the most senior person at the lab. Hmm. The name is worth touching on, of course, a major piece of the puzzle. I love this story. Can you talk us through where the name Holy Frog came from? Of course, Eric Helms is involved in this. Of course. 
course he is. I mean, he's just the, the, the running vein throughout my life, throughout my career. Um, so I was actually visiting a wellness institute with Eric. The month prior in New York, it was opened by a very well-known dermatologist here. His name was da Dr. David Colbert. Mm -hmm. And he, Eric had said to me, will you, will you go um, visit Dr. Colbert's um, integrative health and wellness, I think it was called. I don't know if it still exists. But Eric had invited me to go visit this place. And I, I think Vogue had covered it and pre-launch. And I was, I was like, sure, I'd love to go check that out. And the man who was giving us the tour, they wanted Juice Generation to potentially do some juice boosters for the Institute after facials and cryotherapy and after the treatments they were offering. So we were talking about um, the effect, anti-pollution was a very hot topic at the time. And I was just kind of riffing and saying, well, I wonder if there's something we can do that has ingredients that are sort of help fight the anti-pollution effects and blah, 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 blah. And the man who was giving us the tour said, you know, um, scientists study frogs when they're determining pollution levels. And I was like, what? And the tour, we were in an elevator and the, the elevator doors opened. So the conversation halted because we were going to start the tour. And I couldn't get that off of my mind. And mainly because, well, A, I'm a very curious person, um, but B, I was three of my clients were launching anti-pollution skincare products. So my brain, like my antenna went up because I thought, well, if this is in fact true, then this could be a good pitch for me as I'm pitching anti-pollution to like the New York Times or something, anti-pollution skincare as a trend story. So I left the Institute and I Googled frogs, science, pollution. And he was right. For years, scientists had been studying frogs because frogs are an indicator species due to their thin, permeable skin. They literally can't survive in toxic environments. So when you're in, in a city, you'll never see a frog in the city, ever. I run in Central Park every morning, which is the most fertile area of New York City and you will never see a frog. However, when I'm on Martha's Vineyard and I'm running through my wildlife refuge, I mean, there's frogs hopping everywhere, which shows the health of the environment and the level of toxicity. So he was right. And I thought, well, you know, I actually didn't initially connect it with my brand name because I hadn't fully jumped in and decided to do this. It wasn't Memorial Day yet. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't until a few weeks after that when I was in a yoga class, actually. And the yoga mat I was using was a Manduka yoga mat. And I was in Downward Dog and the logo was staring me at the face and it's a frog logo. Manduka yoga mats are a frog logo because Mandukasana means frog pose. So that's that frog logo connected, reconnected me with the story and I, the, the frog skin story. And I thought to myself, okay, that's, that's the brand story. It's a great way of educating people about the importance and the power of ingredients without fear mongering. So you launched Holy Frog with four facial cleansers and have since launched serums and a moisturizer. Was expanding into these different categories always part of the plan or did those launches stem from consumer demand? 
it was not, you know, I'm one of those people where I, while I love to plan, I'm a huge planner. I don't think too far in advance. Like I like mm. to stay very six months to a year out in terms of, you know, because I always have, I'm always juggling a lot on my plate at one time and thinking about five years from now is way too stressful. So at the time I was really focused on seven cleansers that we yeah. launched we ended up, we have six. So I was focused on seven and thinking of where I could go beyond there, my cellar waters, you know, things like that. It was really, I swear, I didn't intend on expanding out of the cleanser category at year one. But after we launched the four cleansers, um, we really got great feedback from customers and influencers. You see these comments and, and YouTubers and people really were so excited about the quality of our cleansers and how it really took, it reimagined cleansing and took it to the next level because they were active cleansers. I mean, I'm putting 5% amino acids in my cleanser when, you know, most brands don't even have 5% amino acids in their cream, never yeah. mind cleansers, you know? And so we really took such a thoughtful approach to that category that everyone was really unanimously, everyone who had experienced our products was saying, okay, I'm going to need a full line from Holy Frog. And so I kind of initially, I immediately kind of pushed the seventh cleanser idea I had to the back burner and started thinking about what our first product out of the cleansing category would be. And, you know, sidestepping in a, 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 you know, a really thoughtful way, right? So I didn't want to just, you know, the first product outside of the one category you've been in for a year, it can't be random. Mm. So I, for me, I, 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 what made the most sense to me was, okay, what is as universal as a cleanser? It's a non-negotiable. You have to wash your face. What else is it that you have to do that's a non-negotiable? For me, it was hydrate. Yep. And, you know, we all have varying levels of needs when it comes to hydration. So I knew right out of the gate, I wanted Galilee Antioxidant Dewy Drop to be our hydrating hybrid. It, it's for any skin situation. So, you know, whether you're someone like me who has combination oily skin, that has enough hydration for me on its own. Or if you're someone who's super, has super dry parched skin, this can be your hydrating serum before your cream. So I thought to myself, this product is for everyone, but it fits into your, it can fit into your routine based upon your needs, differently based upon your needs. So that's really how we started segueing. And I'm very proud to say that Galilee is, you know, I think, it's in our top three bestsellers. So our bestsellers are Shasta, Tashmu, and Galilee. Those are our, and Sunnyside, our, our newest, those are our top four products, like hands down. That doesn't surprise me. Okay. That's, yeah, that, that adds up. How did the process of creating buzz for your own brand differ from what you've done previously? I imagine it's maybe a slightly different skill set because you kind of have to approach your own brand but turn off that subjective side of it and make it objective? So, you know what? I actually treated it no differently. I treated uh -huh. the PR for Holy Frog like it was a client. I pitched 
from my poke PR email, not my Holy Frog email. Um, I pitched it, you know, if you knew it was my brand, you knew I was pitching about my own brand, but it was never an email that was like, my, 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 I, 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 it was never like that. Um, I was pitching, um, you know, the concept of situational cleansing when we first launched as a new, really a new philosophy that we brought to the cleansing table, the cleansing category. And it was, um, you know, it was something that the audience, both from the consumer spectrum, as well as the press, the editors really gravitated towards. And whether that was my brand or whether that was someone else's brand, that's what I would have led with because it's something that makes total sense. It's not gimmicky. It's not a trend. Um, dermatologists were getting behind it and saying that it's an extremely smart approach to choosing your cleanser. And it's, I really, I really tried to approach treating my own brand like a client because trust me, as someone who's had so many clients, I know what it's like when clients think that everything they're doing is the greatest. And you're like, no, 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 no. No one's going to care. No one's going to care about that. So every time I sent a pitch and every time I, you know, thought of a pitch, I always put on my PR hat and said, okay, are you being one of those clients right now who wants you to pitch their marketing deck? <laughs> you know, like I, I really always tried to wear both hats. And, you know, to this day, like I'm, I never, you know, I never treated, gave Holy Frog more um, of my time than I did my other clients. Um, you know, I, I really was, I toggled between the two. So, um, you know, it wasn't hard actually. Like I didn't, I didn't worry about it. I never felt like I was spending too much time on one or the other. And, you know, this company is suffering right now because I'm putting too much emphasis on that one. It, it was very fluid in, in, in the best way possible. Like it was harmonious almost like it, it's, it's difficult to describe and I'm fortunate and I feel lucky that it wasn't a challenge because it could have been a disaster. <laughs> you have been a part of the beauty industry since you launched Poke PR in 2012. Over that time, what have been some of the biggest changes that you've seen within the beauty industry? Well, um, the first one we touched on, so, the, you know, the, the shift from print to digital. Yeah. So that was a huge change. And then YouTubers. Huge. Mm. That added a totally new layer onto our roles as publicists. I'll never forget the day I got the email from a client and Sephora had sent out this deck of all the top YouTubers at the time. And it was like, they were sending this to all their brands being like, we want you to um, start paying or sending, paying these, these YouTubers, or at least just start seeding them all of your launches. Okay, that adds a lot of work onto our plate as publicists. Every time there's a new medium that launches, podcasts, another one. That adds mm -hmm. a new, that's a whole different subset of people you need to learn and know and schmooze with and pitch to. So, you know, it went from, okay, first we're only working with these 35 print editors and then we're working with 
hundred, a hundred digital editors. And then the next shift was freelance editors. All mm -hmm. of a sudden, all these staff writers were going freelance. So then all of a sudden we have this growing tab on our media list of all the freelance editors. And then there's the YouTubers. And then there's the, the, the YouTubers and then the Instagram people, which that was like, who's dealing with this? Is this PR people? Is this marketing people? Are you guys gonna hire someone to just handle this? Whose role is this? So that was a big change. And then speaking at summits became, all of these summits became a big thing. And every mm -hmm. founder, especially when you represent all founders, they all want to be on stage speaking. So I would say over my almost I'm nine years in, right there, it was like every year there was a new subset of contacts that you needed to study and learn and know, and they were your new glossary and you know your new contact list. And But oh, by the way, you still have to make sure you're pitching all those other people. Like, yeah. It's a lot. So what changes do you think that we can expect to see from the beauty industry over the next few years? Well, I'm still trying to um, figure out whether I'm going to learn TikTok. <laughs> I just, it just seems like too much. I feel like if I even download the app, I will never be off my phone ever again. I'm literally like, this is how I felt when the YouTuber thing got put on my plate. I'm literally like, I'm just going to wait until it goes away. <laughs> or just becomes it just it there's a point where this is all that matters and I'm just gonna have to just dive into the deep end yeah that's exactly so, the approach I'm taking yeah so I'm still I'm, I'm I'm not there yet um anyone who wants to become holy frogs tiktoker um message me because I'm actively looking and I don't even know I'm not actively looking for someone but I'm just basically walking down the street asking people if they're on TikTok <laughs> um so TikTok is one shift that obviously I'm not fully you know grappling with you know another shift that is a newer facet to the beauty world and really probably most industries is the idea of affiliate marketing and yeah that's, you know, obviously very powerful and that has changed our roles as publicists yet again. So I'm curious to see um, what in the beauty PR editorial space, like how much of it is real journalism and how much of it is just shoppable content? Because we're really, we're really kind of walking a fine line here between, you know, is is are these great stories or are these just again commerce pieces mm -hmm. is the internet just going to become one big catalog essentially it's a fine line it's a fine line and then you know the other thing i'm really and again this is something that's really important to me and it was something that really helped discover who and what holy frog was and is and always will be but it's really about not just talking about the ingredients that are in the products, but also the percentages they're in at, because like, I know it's very common to say like, we have 14 amino acids in our products. Okay, but are they in there at 0.01%? Because yeah. they can be, or are they in there at like an active clinical percent? Because we're very transparent with that stuff. Like I will literally say, 
there is 3% tranexamic acid in this product because it needs to be, tranexamic acid needs to be used at two to 5% in order to claim any of the clinicals that that ingredient does. So if you're gonna put in 1% or below, you can't actually claim that it's going to even the skin tone. You can't claim that, but you are. So I, you know, and you know, I still haven't seen one other brand share what percentage of surfactants are in their products. So it's great for you to say that you use plant-derived surfactants, but let me tell you, um, I would rather use 1% or less of a sulfate than your 30 to 40% of your yeah. sugar and coconut-derived gentle surfactants. So great that it's gentle, but if you're using too high of a percent, it's no longer gentle. And that's why you're telling people they should only wash their face one time a day because you have way too much surfactant in your cleanser. Oh, the, the level of transparency is music to my ears. My final question, Emily, what is next for Holly Frog? So we have four launches next year. Yeah. So we're really on a trajectory of Majid, I'm comfortable with three launches a year because four is a lot. I mean, a lot. lot. And I just know from my PR career, it was always three key launches and then kits and stuff like that. Majid really wants to do four a year. So we have four for next year. We'll see if we can keep at that pace. Um, I am closing my PR agency at long last. So I will only be focusing on Holy Frog full time. It's wild that you've been maintaining that the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I guess I'm just a masochist. (laughs) (laughs) So in terms of what's next for Holy Frog, we've got, we're entering a new category in January. So, you know, it's not a cream, it's not a serum, it's not a cleanser. I leave it to you to guess what's next, but it's a new category for us. That was Emily Parr founder of Holly Frog, which you can find on Instagram at Holly Frog. To read this interview, you can visit glowjournal.com. And for more beauty news, you can find me on Instagram at jemkwatts or at glow.journal. If you liked this episode, please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review and share so other beauty and business lovers can find us. I'm Gemma Watts. You've been listening to the Glow Journal podcast and thank you for joining me.